Hey, Andrew. Hello. Nice <laughs> to see you folks again. It's been about two weeks. It has. And, uh, you know, looking back at the last decade, we were in 2011 and you didn't know what to do with yourself. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's probably a familiar story um, for most of us. You know, you kind of find yourself at that point where you're sort of, I don't know, you're, you're, you're at a point of flux, right? And I think that that's kind of that's where I was in 2011 for sure. Um, and this is right after you'd gotten your degree. Yeah. So I, I, I stopped working um, in finance and like in any kind of major role um, that I'd been doing before in 2009. And then I went and did a master's degree um, for two years. And then I finished right around 2011. And then I didn't really know what to do with myself because I had sort of <laughs> just redirected everything. Um, while I did do some amounts of sort of finance and political economy in my master's degree, um, it wasn't done with any intent of sort of leveling up so I could go back into finance, right? Well, I did have a question on that because I remember reading in this book uh, from Bars to Bitcoin by Justin Redrick, who we also um, interviewed on this podcast, but I remember in that book, he talked about him being in college and, um, him going through you know, college and the teachers telling him that, okay, you're getting this degree, but once you're done, you're not going to get a job for the next year, year and a half. And he thought to himself, as he wrote in the book, that why am I doing this? If I'm going to go into debt to get this education and I won't be able to pay it back for at least a year, year and a half until after I graduated, were you in a similar situation or did you find that the degree that you you'd gotten, if you did, since you didn't want to go into finance, that there really were no jobs available? Or did your teachers say that to you during your education? Um, I think that uh, we didn't have teachers in my master's degree that were quite that honest <laughs> <laughs> with us. Maybe we could have used that uh, a little bit, especially for some of the specializations. But I think honestly, um, I was a lot more grown up when I did my master's. I had taken about almost like 10 years off at that point from doing my undergrad. And I think that, you know, and I think most people that are, have been older students sort of know that experience in, in the sense that I think that you approach it a little bit more pragmatically. And, you know, even just now being a professor, my older students tend to have, um, I don't really know how to really put it. They, they tend to just be dedicated in a slightly different way sometimes than undergraduates just because they've had some life experience and they know what they want to do and they have more of a direction and they have in their head how they want to apply this degree, I think, a bit more clearly. I think I was more lost getting out of my undergrad, especially with a history degree and then going in and working in, you know, um, portfolio management and stuff like that. And and uh, on the retail side of finance, um, which had nothing to do with history, um, <laughs> except maybe, you know, help with some like lighthearted conversations over dinner with clients, right? <laughs> you know, history is useful in that kind of way. But I think that in 2011, I think I sort of had this, uh, this feeling that like, okay, I had done this degree. My intent was not to go back to finance. It wasn't like I was going to go and get an MBA and like level up or like try to, you know, do an advanced degree in, in finance in a way in which I'd go back into a different area of finance, like investment banking or something like that. Um, though that was an option. Um, but I wanted to actually go back and actually do something that I was really interested in. Um, and what I was really interested in, and I think I, I mentioned this in the last podcast, if not, I'll, I'll state it again, but, um, was that, well, I didn't really love the job. I really liked like trying to understand that very intricate web between global politics, markets, market movements, domestic politics, like those sort of two level games between domestic and sort of international politics and how that, you know, and how markets sort of factored into that and how finance sort of factored into that. And sort of that curiosity of, you know, like, is, is the dog wagging the tail or is the tail wagging the dog, right? Is everyone just responding to, responding to what the markets are doing or is, you know, the markets responding to what the politics are doing? 
And I think that did you ever get an answer to that? I think the answer, and you know, I'm still you know kind of observing. I think is that it really depends. I think it really depends on. I think they both are sort of um, highly integrated, but I think that generally speaking. The markets like as little interference from politics as possible. I think we all sort of know that. Um, and that that obviously is also something in the cryptocurrency space that's kind of a big deal, obviously, is this idea of government involvement. How would you define government involvement and interference? Well, just through like regulatory aspects. Um, but I think that it's it's different, right, when you're thinking about sort of, um, sort of the cryptocurrency space, because they're also reacting to a few other things, I think, as well as besides just like straight up regulation. But the regulation can get slipped in anywhere, anyhow, right? So you look at this recent infrastructure bill um, that was passed in the United States, and they slipped in a couple of cryptocurrency things, right? And now you got to report when you um, give more than ten thousand dollars into one of these and um, exchanges or brokers, as they want to call them, uh, and the brokers themselves, you know, have to now issue like ten ninety nine, I think it is, like tax statements and everything in the United States, which means it's going to be a lot more trackable, I think, for the IRS on folks. Um, and I mean, that's fine. You know, I'm all for people paying their taxes, right? I don't need people to use cryptocurrencies just as a tax evasion scheme. So like, that's not what I think the purpose of them is for, right? Um, but it is interesting that it can get slipped in into anything. Um, you know, you think um, like of the big Dodd-Frank bill that happened in 2009, and there was like an obscure clause about not buying uh, Coltan from, you know, from child labor in the DRC and like tracking down the sources of a lot of these rarer earth metals, which is not something you really associate with the Dodd-Frank bill. But, you know, the U.S. has this way of sort of slipping these things in. Um, I think what will be interesting in this most recent piece of legislation, though, is this idea of what a broker is, because I don't think that that's super well defined in the same way in the crypto space, because it's not like you have a lot of like Morgan Stanley's or, you know, Goldman Sachs's or, um, you know, Bank of America, whoever kind of selling you these things and creating like these portfolios for you on this grand sort of scale that you have in other parts of finance. Right. Some of the time it's just some person in their basement that wrote a smart contract and now is managing billions of dollars. And that's essentially that smart contract is the thing selling you whatever investments or investment portfolio. But does the person that wrote it actually have the ability to like, are they the broker or is the smart contract, the broker, the mm -hmm. broker is the smart contract, a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization or company. And how does that all factor in? And maybe there's not enough foresight or um, like built into this definition of broker to really uh, encompass all of the, the nuances of the crypto space. Yeah. And I think it goes to what we were sort of talking about a little bit um, last time about, you know, how cryptocurrency is like certain other assets class, but it's not also. Right. Do you know what I mean? And so I think that what they're trying to do is sort of put traditional definitions on things in this space that don't quite work. But like anything, you know, it's sort of like, it's sort of like the law, right? So you create a law and then there's a lot of gray area in that law. And then eventually it has to go to court and get sorted out. And then you kind of get to the fine point of those details of like how the law should actually be applied. And I think that that's kind of what's going to be happening in this as well. I don't think that we're stopping at this and just defining everyone as a broker, right? Especially when they're exchanges. And maybe they decide that the exchanges operate like brokers in this space and therefore should um, operate under the same auspices. Maybe that's just the solution. But I think that there's a lot more to flesh out. Mm. Um, and I think that this is like kind of part of this in the last few years, these first couple of real attempts to begin to enter and regulate and examine the space by governments more and more. I think, you know, if you go back like 10 years ago, I think a lot of governments just thought this stuff would pass like a fad, right? And would just disappear and kind of hoped maybe that it would in some ways. Because 
I mean, if I was like sitting around in the treasury department, I would be pretty miserable trying to figure out how to sort through this. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I don't envy those poor bureaucrats who are like, okay, now how do I figure out how we make this a more legitimate part of the sort of fin finance space for, for clients? Because I also think there's a benefit to doing that in a way in that I think if you really want to have really mass buy-in into these, um, into these cryptocurrencies, you do need to sort of, um, create more transparency in those spaces for the clients as well, right? Like what is my tax implication? Why, why do I use this? How do I fit this in? And I think those things do need to get sorted out for clients as much or even more maybe so than the governments, right? Cause I need to know what I'm getting myself involved in. And I don't want a moving target, right? I don't want something that is being taxed this way today, but then could be totally adjusted in two years from now. Um, um, that's not fun to deal with, right? And that type of an unpredictability can create- I'm having fun. <laughs> well, it can create a lot of volatility, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But I don't think that that's something that will help it help the uptake if you don't get yeah. some of that sort of transparency in. It, it's also not a fun job to have. Like, it's probably fun for you to figure out just for yourself. I know, I'm <laughs> really just strictly speaking about myself there. <laughs> well, and like, and, and I think like you, I like the volatility and yeah. I like playing with that, but I have experience with that and you have a lot of experience in the cryptocurrency uh, trading space, but I think people that are just kind of getting their, you know, their toes wet in this, like a oh, little- Oh, it's scary. It's scary and a little bit of predictability and even just knowing what my tax liability will be like firmly, I think is an important thing for folks that are doing a lot of planning. Especially estate planning and stuff too, which this could actually strangely factor into. Oh, it definitely does. Like, how do you? How exactly do you pass twelve words to your relative, and what does that look like from a tax implication? And is that tracked? Can it be tracked? Because yep. when someone dies, like it's all like that. That brokerage account is under one name, but your cryptocurrency address is not under any name, and so it'd be very easy to to for you to leave a sizable fortune mm -hmm. to your next of kin without anyone really knowing about it until they go and try to spend it maybe. Yeah. And I mean, I think it could even like, if it's not being perhaps properly addressed also in your will, it could leave stranded assets in places too. You True. know what I mean? And so I think that, um, that part, I mean, as painful as it may feel at certain points, I think that that part is coming and, and maybe it sort of needs to come at least because we're not, I don't think we're going to be without governments anytime necessarily soon. And those governments need to fund themselves and they want to classify this. I also think maybe it's a nice sign that they're starting, in a weird way, I think maybe it's not a terrible thing that they're starting to try to use these old classifications initially, because I think that that means that they're looking at it like a legitimate investment. So even though there's a lot of misnomers built into like the broker and stuff like that, and they're going to have to sort through that, I'm a little heartened by the fact that they're treating it like a normal investment. Likewise. Yeah. And that they're not treating it like this horrible, like, you know, sort of, you know, but the way governments used to talk about it, it was like, oh, it was just built for the dark web and smuggling and stuff like that. They're actually treating it as something legitimate and giving it credibility in doing so, right? And South Korea actually came up with a different asset class, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. It's either them or Japan. And that seems like the right approach long term. Mm -hmm. But I can totally see why the government would want to first try and classify it under existing rules. It's like an easy win almost. And then, okay, let's take a deeper dive into this later and create a new whole new asset class. Because to me, it does look like a new asset class entirely. Like, I think the closest analog might be something like oil mm -hmm. a couple hundred years ago, something that basically didn't exist and had just massive far reaching implications. Um, I don't know. What do you think? I think you're right. I think, and I think that also it'll depend on like sort of just how Byzantine the rules are for each country, right? So each country is going to have a reckoning for this right. on their own. And, you know, the tax laws in the U.S. are very sorted, very complicated, um, and full of loopholes and really just designed by, I mean, sorry, the, you know, 
being honest about it, but really just designed by, you know, a combination of consultants and tax attorneys, right? In, in ways that provide their clients with ways out that aren't really possible for those that can't pay for an army of consultants and tax attorneys to get them through those loopholes, right? So when you think about a lot of that tax base in the States, it's really the small businesses that pay the majority of that rate. The bigger businesses usually find ways out because they can hire all these consultants to bail them out. Right. Um, and so I think that it's going to probably be a little, it might be more trickier in some places like the United States. I'm not super familiar with South Korean securities laws, but they might be more straightforward and might be more simple. Um, you know, and so in that sense, it might be easier to just kind of create a new asset class out of the blue for it. I think in the, something like the U S it'll be a little bit more of an iterative process and trying something and then readjusting and trying something and probably readjusting. How does that impact hedge funds? Like how would that impact the firm that you used to work at with respect to, um, categorizing if they were also trading cryptocurrencies for their clients, categorizing that asset class versus the traditional asset classes, like the fact that um, whatever government law has not really been solidified or um, there is not a lot of clarity on the classification of cryptocurrency, trading cryptocurrencies, how does that impact uh, a large firm that if, where clients really want brokers to trade cryptocurrencies? I mean, I think that you're you're sort of touching upon one of the points of reticence on a lot of those big firms over the last 10 years and not getting involved in this space because they don't really know where it was going to go. They don't really know how the regulations were going to apply. Um, and I think that as we get a little bit more transparent, you know, and we start to have some of these sort of mechanisms being put in place to make it feel like a more traditional asset class, I think you'll also see um, the comfort level go up um, on the side of the banks. With hedge funds, it really is very different. I think, I think you know, we, we say the word hedge fund, but I mean, that's such a broad category and they have so many different types of hedge funds and specializations within the hedge fund space and trading styles and all of that, that I think that the ones who have wanted to get involved in cryptocurrency have mapped out their risk pretty, pretty, you know, obsessively, I would imagine over the last, you know, five to 10 years as they started to get involved in this space. Um, and then you probably have other ones that have just decided that it's not worth the risk at this point to get involved too much in that. Still at this, like still at this point, it's not worth the risk. It depends on the mandate, right? Like right. you have hedge funds that are pretty specialized, you know, they're funds, right? So the, the funds sort of have targets, they have goals, they have things they do, things they don't do. Um, you know, I would imagine that most of them who want to deal with cryptocurrencies have found ways to, to evaluate that risk and integrate it. But there are some that just don't care and don't want to do it. I mean, they don't, maybe don't trade oil either. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so it's just not maybe within their mandate or what they, what their sort of goals are. So it sort of depends. And so it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a hard thing to classify, I think, as much in the hedge fund space, just because it is so varied there. I think that um, when you're talking about more of the traditional sort of like large bank side of the finance world, I think that's where the comfort level has been pretty low um, and where right this might begin to adjust. So we got on this tangent because of the infrastructure bill that mm -hmm. was recently passed. And I'm getting back to, I guess, 2011. I'm very curious to hear what happened in the last decade of your story. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to have more tangents um, on that too. Um, and like sort of arrive at um, uh, like crypto. How did you come across crypto? What was your story for getting involved in it and getting interested in it? And then, you know, what are your opinions on cryptocurrency? But let's get back to 2011. You just graduated mm -hmm. and... 
So I graduated, um, you know, I was trying to get some consulting gigs here or there that sort of aligned with my master's and my sort of previous life in finance. And so I consulted for a few companies, um, particularly like some foreign companies um, and even like a little bit like for um, some, some, some government stuff. And, but it wasn't feeling like... I don't know. I just kind of felt like I was like just sort of coasting on my prior career and not really applying and doing what I wanted to do. And I think that, um, you know, I'm the kind of person that will slowly build steam. You know what I mean? Like kind of like a tea kettle until I burst and then everything <laughs> has to change. Right. And so I think that was kind of happening in 2011. I think I shut down a little bit cause I didn't, I was trying to figure out a way to stay in New York, but also pursue what I wanted to pursue, which was a career in academia. And, um, you know, I was married at the time. She's super wonderful. Uh, and, but at the same time, I think we were starting to have diverging goals in life. I think that, you know, her goal was to really continue and um, to mature along the path that she had sort of chosen. Whereas mine was to really switch my path entirely. And I think if I had maybe been a little bit older, a little bit more mature, I might have been able to like express that better to her and maybe we could have been fine. But I think I just kind of burst at a certain point. And um, that's when in 20, end of 2012, I decided to take a break from like life in general. And so um, there was a, a house up here that my parents- Up here being? Up here in Nova Scotia. So now <laughs> we're in Nova so, Okay, so I'm in Brooklyn <laughs> and, you know, living a nice little Brooklyn life, living on like, you know, Washington Street in like Dumbo. It's beautiful. Like, you know, we, you know, life was good in that regard. Um, you know, and the, the previous decade had been, had been good to us financially. But I think- um, I needed to some, I needed to try something new. And so my, my parents had bought like a piece of property up here, um, in the nineties. I think they wanted to buy something in Maine, but Nova Scotia was a bit cheaper. Um, yeah, quite a bit, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. Especially back then. Right. Cause you're also talking about the U S dollar being worth like a dollar 80 Canadian, almost $2 at certain points in the nineties. Right. Yeah. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah, it was, yeah. Well, you know, that was not the worst thing for Canada when that happens sometimes, but that's a different tangent. Um, but anyway, uh, so they had bought this land and then my father had been like sort of working on this company that he had been trying to build from scratch, which was like, you know, really tough throughout the nineties. And then he finally managed to sell it, um, right around 2000, which allowed him to have finally some free cash flow. And then he built a house down there. Um, but like, you know, 2008 and all of that wasn't like super kind to them and stuff. So I think that they, this house had become a little bit of like a white elephant. Um, but it was there and it was available. Um, and so, uh, I came up here and what I thought was going to be like a three to four week sort of get my shit together, put my head on straight, go back to Brooklyn with a new, like, you know, sort of, um, goal and a little bit of a spring in my step has now turned into roughly um, eight full years, actually nine full years. Um, so you initially came here to look at houses and also just vacation or was your intent always to look for something permanent here? No, I mean, I think I came up here and I think like, I, I don't know, I think I had to attach some kind of a goal to coming up here. So I was like, I'm going to look into PhD programs while I'm here. Uh, okay. But I arrived in January uh, of 2013 and in January of 2013, it was too late to apply to most of the U.S. programs. And it was also a bit too late by the end of January to apply to a lot of Canadian programs. 
And so, but one of the only programs that still had a February 1st deadline was Dalhousie, which was just happened to be, you know, about, you know, an hour to two, about two, two and a half hours from where I was. So I was like, not here in Halifax. <laughs> I went from like Brooklyn to a tiny town called Little Port Le Bear, which is about halfway between Liverpool and Shelburne, Nova Scotia. Population probably like 60. Um, <laughs> so like way out on this cliff uh, where this piece of property was like on the water um, and getting there in January where like literally with like the, the, the storms and like the bay and the gray water and like the snow and everything, I felt like I had just like entered Skyrim or some shit, right? <laughs> like, like I had just gone from Brooklyn to like this. It was like, okay, great. So um, there's like coyotes howling at night and I'm like, okay, this is this is not this is not, different. This is different. Change. Yeah, and also like kind of like admittedly like pretty like holy fuck what did I just do right <laughs> yeah and I think there was a part of me um, during that period it needed to make something happen out of all this so I uh, I drove up here to to Halifax and I went and I did um, an interview at uh, Dalhousie with the political science department and. They were like, yeah, give it a shot, apply. They're like, you'd have a good chance. Um, and I talked to someone that would be willing to supervise me and things like that. And so I went down and I wrote my application up and I got it in like, you know, just before the deadline on February 1st. And at that point I was kind of due to head home by like mid-February. But in the end, um, I don't know. I just, I just didn't want to. Uh, I was like not ready to go back and... Eventually, like weeks rolled into months and suddenly it was April and it was just like nice to have a complete break from my old life. Because I think one of the things in 2011, 2012 is that, okay, sure, I knew I wanted to make a switch. But, you know, when you're in New York and you've got lots of, and you, and you have friends and a social life and you have like, you know, things that you're responsible for, like mortgages and stuff like that, it's very hard to really sort of disconnect from that and really think about a way forward. Right. There's so much noise, you know. Um, but anyway, like, so that began to roll in and I think it also became more and more clear that my wife and I were going to separate. Um, and so we decided to do that in April and wasn't like, it was like, oh, this is totally over, but we're going to take a separation, you know, legal separation. She needed to protect herself legally, which I think is more than fair. Um, so I went back down in April and that was when I was supposed to return for good. Right. Um, so on my way back, I sort of had this very fatalistic uh, thought. And I was like, okay, so if I'm supposed to also hear from Dalhousie's program about doing a PhD. And so I was like, all right, if I hear back and they give me what I want, you know what I mean? Like funding wise, opportunity wise, things like that, then I will take that as sort of a sign from the ether that I have to do it. I have to try it. If not, or if they don't give me much, but accept me and just kind of, you know, want me to pay my own way and stuff like that, I will... I will figure out a way to go back home and then I will restart and I will try to see what happens in the next year. Maybe I'll apply to programs in the States come like September, October. Um, so on the drive, I get the email that basically says, was right when I get home and I'm going actually home to, part of the reasons I was also going home was I was starting to do these sort of workshop lectures at NYU. Um, oh. Yeah. Well, that's why I went for my master's, right? And so I guess they remembered me either infamously or fondly <laughs> at some point. And they had, they kept bringing me back to do these sort of um, little like workshop lectures with some of their students, particularly on finance and commodities at the time, which were such a, like a huge part of the finance industry between the 2000s and up until about 2014 before all of the energy um, sort of commodities sold off. And so 
um, right when I was like, I remember I was sitting uh, in my little sister's room at my parents' house where I was staying um, because my room had turned into like a storage facility. Um, we all kind of know how that feels when you go back home, right? And you're like, this isn't home anymore. Um, and so I was sitting there and I was sitting in her bathroom and I was like typing something up quickly uh, and washing my hands. And then I received an email and they were like, yeah, so this is, this is it. This is the package we're going to give you. I was like, wow, that's really cool. That's really nice. Um, and I just did it. And then I drove back up here and then that was it. And then it was like a whole weird summer of trying to prepare um, living out on that weird cliff, um, <laughs> completely alone, you know, you're completely sitting there with me and my dog. Right. And, uh, it was very lonely out there. Um, and then I started at Dalhousie in September and they were really kind in the sense that, um, within my first year, I was told to apply for an instructor position at a different department because they were looking for someone who had my background and expertise. Well, in what, so teaching in what, and what were you doing your PhD in? So my PhD uh, is in political science and my PhD is really looking at that interaction that I had sort of mentioned earlier, sort of that interaction between market volatility and political decision making, um, particularly in cases of extreme market volatility in commodities. So looking at like food markets in the Arab Spring, looking at like oil markets, um, say in 2014 in Alberta and stuff like that and how this, um, how that type of volatility um, affects a lot of very important political decision making, right? And so... But a lot of my background as a, in energy also meant I knew a, a fair amount um, about how the renewable market worked as well. And so my first year, um, I started as a teaching assistant in a different department, which is um, Dalhousie's College of Sustainability, which was a new department. It's not technically a department, but I'll just call it that for expediency's sake. Um, it was a new department that was focusing on um, environment um, and society and sustainability, right? So it wasn't just looking at sort of a traditional environmental science aspect of it. It was also looking at a lot of the social aspects. In fact, I would say it looks more closely in some ways at social aspects than it does at at, um, sort of environmental aspects and environmental science type aspects. And so, um, you know, obviously global capitalism is a big thing for sustainability um, and having an understanding of the renewable industry. And so I was a teaching assistant for them and I guess they liked my performance in that role. And so um, someone in that department who I had worked for pulled me aside and were like, we're opening up this instructor position and the instructor position was for, was for uh, a role that I had TA'd for. But that particular instructor did not want to come back, I don't think. And so um, I applied, I got it. And then at this point now, I feel like everything had kind of just been so serendipitous, right? Like, so everything just kind of weirdly worked out. Not only did I get into PhD program and got the funding and stuff like that, but now I was also basically an actual professor and not a sessional either, like an actual limited term appointment. Um, and so I actually had a weird career now. Not always the easiest teaching full-time and trying to finish a PhD. Um, so, you know, that, that I think was, was one thing that was tricky, but, um, but now suddenly like everything had kind of worked the way I wanted to. And I think that, um, and I've been doing it ever since, right? And so, and in fact, actually, you know, as we're talking here, I was mentioning that I have to go and apply and see if I can get my contract renewed. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, no. So like that just kind of turned into this really interesting experience up here in Nova Scotia. Um, and I think that, this all sort of coincided with um, sort of this academic pursuits and looking at these markets and looking at sort of these volatility and stuff also sort of coincided with the increasing um, sort of visibility of cryptocurrencies. 
And I think that in that role, I started to also get a lot of students asking about it, right? So while I teach in a sustainability department, a lot of my classes are actually designed to teach about international finance, ESG investing. What's ESG? Um, so this is like sort of environmental, sustainable uh, investing. So, you know, trying to invest in, you know, non-polluting companies, things like that. The companies that have like a sort of a better relationship with the environment and creating portfolios out of that. Um, and so all of this was sort of coming at the same time. And then you had this sort of cryptocurrency that was happening as well. And it was interesting because like a lot of the, I was very much like one of those folks who was sort of one of these older time finance people who I would say until about like 2017, 2018, just thought that the whole cryptocurrency space was stupid <laughs> and that it was probably just going to disappear. And I think you even mentioned when we first met that there was a point where like you were kind of like suspicious of like whether or not this was going to ever actually make it. And then you kind of had like a well, I was skeptical of Bitcoin as well. I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, OK, it's old tech. It's 2009. It's like so archaic. Um, but then I, I just took a second look at it and during the last bear market, 2017, 18, 19. And yeah, I think that it's actually really, really rare for someone to locate it and go, oh, this is the future, like yeah. in, in, a, in a very short span of time, because it's so different than what we currently have and it's a completely different system mm -hmm. um so i think that a majority of people go through that journey of oh this is going to go away or oh what's the next bitcoin i want to bet on that or oh what's the next xyz and this is all old stuff fairly reliable pattern actually like from the people that i've introduced like i've start with bitcoin then they go off on their own and look at a thousand other other things that the that they can find and they think it's this, that, and the other thing. And sometimes it is, um, but like there's ultimately a return um, for most of them, like a, a very large chunk of these people that then come back to, to Bitcoin and like take a second look at it. It depends on strategies too, right? Because totally. I mean, on our cryptocurrency exchange apps there, you can see the top gainers and they've gained by 78% in the past 24 <laughs> hours. And these coins I would not have heard of until I see them in like the top gainers list. So if someone is a day trader or a, like a week to week trader, trading altcoins are going to make them a lot of money if they know which ones to bet on correctly. But for the kind of strategy that we've decided to partake in, Bitcoin's sort of been the... Bitcoin is money. It's not even like I really don't even look at it as an investment anymore. But um, yeah, Bitcoin is sort of just the the best sort of system for us to partake in and save our money in. Yeah, I, I think I think that the versatility of these I didn't didn't really dawn on me until a little bit later. Extremely right? versatile. Yeah, well, and, I, and to be perfectly honest, I didn't really understand the technology behind it. Like. You had a computer science degree, right? So you could at least pick apart the tech. I think that for me, it was like coming from someone that had more experience in pure finance. I was just like, well, like, and again, it was kind of the same timing, like in that 2017 to 2019, where I was like, oh, maybe there's something really here. Um, but I think leading up to that, it was sort of like, okay, well, I get the fact that it's scarce, but you know what? I understand gold a lot better than I understand, you know, Bitcoin. I'll just fucking buy that. You know what I mean? And like, <laughs> yeah. that'll be the same play, right? It's just like, okay, but it's that without sort of this weird, you know, sort of new quality that this thing has that you can't totally flesh out. And I think also to be fair, I think for a lot of folks, especially in that first like six, seven years, there was a sort of a stigma that I think was not necessarily um, untrue that this had become a little bit of a black market currency. Right. And I think folks wanted to sort of stay away from that. Uh, didn't really want to be associated with it. Um, and just sort of like 
that whole understanding how even like wallet works and all of that, I think was like just kind of like, daunting. Yeah, it was a lot to overcome and really kind of look at, right? And I also think that back then, a lot of the exchanges were more archaic and tricky to work with. Now yeah. they're so much more user friendly. The UX is better. That's something really useful. And we saw that happen with equities, right? We saw like, you know, people, you know, trying to create these really sort of difficult archaic trading platforms for people at home in the 90s versus like how they operate now, which are just like so easy to operate. You log in your CIBC or your TD or whatever, and everything is just super easy done for you. Um, and it's very easy to, to buy and sell stocks, right? And I think that some of that needed to play a little catch up. So I have a question kind of in and around this particular topic of cryptocurrencies becoming a certain size that these larger institutional players can actually get involved. Like we we're talking a little bit about this, Mirko, you asked a question about hedge funds and why they might not be getting involved. But now we're seeing a much greater level of adoption now more than ever. And I came across this label, it's called a Veblen Good. And it's the like the higher a particular asset goes in price or market cap, the, the actual level of risk goes down. Um, and you actually get a perception in the market that the thing is safer, uh, which is kind of counterintuitive because you're thinking like, oh, well, as this thing goes up, there's a greater capacity for it to like do a significant retracement. But we kind of see a general opposite trend happening with Bitcoin over the last eight, eight, eight to 13 years. Mm -hmm. um, can you do you have an analog for that with respect to any other assets? Like you're just going off a tangent like about equities, for example. Is that applicable here? Yeah, I think you could use equities and 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 make it applicable in this case. I think that um, obviously, you know, when you look at like penny stocks, they move around like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50% in a day, right? They actually make Bitcoin look really tame. <laughs> um, you know, maybe not Bitcoin like from 10, 11 years ago, but Bitcoin today, right? Um, and I think that as a price increases and as you have more institutional buy-in and, um, and you increase the market capitalization, it also means you have a lot more volume behind that. You have a lot more buyers, you have a lot more sellers, you have a lot larger of a market which means that when people start to sell it, there's more people there to buy it um, who are waiting. On, uh, and then the same thing as people are starts to, um, starting to, to buy it, there are more sellers willing to, um, to sell off, right? Because they have this as part of their portfolio. Um, and at certain points, you, know, you want to rebalance. I think that when you're talking about something that's more of a niche product, right? Where you have less visibility and you're talking about things like penny stocks, one hedge fund can move it, can move it around and play with it. You know what I mean? If they, right. if they so choose to, um, if they have enough capital, right? And so that creates an entirely different level of volatility. Um, and I think that that is now uh, one of the things that made me um, a little skeptical of Bitcoin in the beginning. But I think that like you point out, Keegan, I think that that has been pretty much slowly being drained from this, I think. I think that now there are a fair number of institutional players involved in this, um, and I think that uh, as that as the price goes up and as more and more folks get involved in the trading, um, you will tend to see probably more price stability. So what kind of questions would you get from your students asking about cryptocurrency? That's kind of where we left off on this tangent. Yeah, well, that's where a lot of the curiosity started because it was like I had one of the folks in the PhD program uh, in my cohort, the only other one, um, was very big tech guy. And uh, or at least he was into tech and he was into like looking at merging technologies and government policies regarding them. And so Bitcoin was one of them. And so we had talked a bit about it at times. Um, but this was right around like 20, I want to say like 2014, like, uh, winter of 2014, where you had, uh, maybe it was a little bit earlier than that, but it was still kind of the after effects of that, where you had had, um, a hack or something, uh, that had gone, had it happened in, in the cryptocurrency space with one of the exchanges and- Oh, Mt. Gox. Yeah. And then everyone- 
piled out and the whole price collapsed because people got scared. Um, and so it was right at that point. So I think that, you know, he sort of was trying to explain to me the technology and, and trying to enlighten me on it. Um, but it was at a point where obviously the cryptocurrency space was looking a little sketchy, particularly. So cool. I registered that, but I didn't really think too much about it. But once we got to like 2017, 2018, um, I did start to get more and more, uh, questions from students, but not just with Bitcoin, but also blockchain in general. Right. Right and how this was working and how this could work in a lot of ways um, to even change the sort of, you know, future sustainability space that I was teaching in, right? Like using blockchains to perhaps um, create much more, say, transparent, um, say, carbon credits, right? Which would evaluate and make sure that the supply chain is actually high, as effective as people are saying is one of the problems we have with a lot of ESG investing is sort of... False reporting. Yeah. Or, or not even intentional though, right? right? But just like not being able to quantify exactly how much emissions are being reduced or something along those lines. But once you start to institute things like blockchain technology that can sort through that and begin to um, work on those particular problems, these basically large computing problems, um, that could be a big game changer, right? And I actually think that in some ways, you know, cryptocurrencies can make a much better form of carbon, carbon credit than, um, than what we currently are using um, on exchanges, um, which are often sort of just government designed in a lot of ways, right? And, and can also be means that government can give it out as much as they want, which we saw um, sort of the Europeans do too much um, sort of giving of these carbon credits when the European uh, trading scheme was put together. Um, and so I think that there were, that was one thing that was kind of interesting. And so the blockchain, uh, that would lead me back to cryptocurrencies. And then increasingly I would have, you know, friends who know that I worked in finance being like, is now a good time to buy Bitcoin? Is now a good time to buy Bitcoin? <laughs> right. This was like 2018, 2019. Um, and I was always just sort of like, well, the chart says yes, but I don't really know anything about this. And so like, I got to learn more and I got to like sort of sort through it. Um, and, um, and so I, I think I probably gave some pretty shitty advice back then of like, likewise, yeah, like, <laughs> I don't know if you really want to do this. Like, you know what I mean? Like, don't, don't, don't screw yourself over. Like this is, you know, you, you save this money and it was often coming from folks that hadn't, and this is one of the interesting things about it, it was often coming from folks that hadn't really invested in traditional markets, but had put aside money, young professionals, mostly millennials that were like pretty successful um, in their opening career, um, or like very late Gen Xers. And um, they saw this as something really interesting. And therefore, when they were coming to me, I was like, oh, this is them just like not knowing anything about finance and just jumping on the thing that's kind of like shiny right now. Um, and I still do believe that, you know, uh, I, for me personally, Bitcoin is, or any kind of cryptocurrency is not the only thing I would have my portfolio in. Um, Unlike us. Well, yeah, you mean like, yeah, I mean, but I mean, the name of this is go full crypto, right? So like, if you weren't doing that, it would be a misnomer for your, you know what I mean? For all of it. So like, I mean, and I can see where you can design, um, you know, pretty diverse portfolios across cryptocurrencies. But I think for me, just from my own level of expertise, I think that I like having a bit of a blend, right? And some that totally. kind of worked off each other. Tell me more about your diversity tactics, though, because I used to think um, that diversity is great for portfolios as well. I think just because I've, I've heard it so many times or being talked about so many times. But I read this book by Morgan Hansel. It's called The Psychology of Money. And mm -hmm. one of the chapters in that he talked about how um, like the analogy of making sure that you don't put all of your eggs in one basket doesn't really pour it over to finance or investments because if you look at look at it over a large enough time scale, only a very small percentage, let's say twenty percent of a hundred percent of your quote unquote diverse portfolio, 
gets you the returns that um, kind of just overtake what the entire whatever 100% of your portfolio would have. And if you are focused enough, or if you've done enough research, and you know exactly what sort of investment you want to make, because um, like, or for that particular investment, you can be sure to whatever degree that it will be the most, um, it'll give you the most number of returns over a long enough period of time, then just go for that and be really focused in your investment. And not simply in that book, I have also heard other investment professionals talk about a more focused portfolio. Warren um, Buffett specifically, he says something like, uh, you, you need to make 20 good investments in your lifetime and like that will set you up. Whereas like I made 20 investments in like a week in 2017, and, like one of them panned out. <laughs> no, but I'm also talking about people in the cryptocurrency space. And like I've heard investment professionals bust this myth that you need to diversify your portfolio so you increase your chances of um, getting a good return on investment, which is why I kind of want to know what your philosophy on diversification is. I think, I think it's a bit, when you're talking about institutional investing, I think it's a bit of um, a misnomer to talk about sort of this general risk tolerance diversification, right? I, I think that that is something that we, that is something that like retail brokers will tend to do with mom and pops, uh, particularly after the internet bubble where they did tell them to focus a little bit too much and they got burned. Um, and this is a way of sort of them insulating themselves from being, um, you know, bad fiduciaries for their clients, Right. But I think if you look at large institutional funds that aren't mandated to have to have this spread of risk, right? Because you have you have certain institutions that just can't take on the risk, right? You think about an insurance company that has right. to have lots of money sitting liquid in case there's a massive claim, a hurricane hits. So they pretty much all have to invest in AAA assets, mostly debt assets. So they're you know investing in things like U.S. Treasuries and stuff like that because they need to have the money on hand. You look at um, a lot of like, you know, these sort of sovereign wealth funds, you know, that are put up by having huge trade surpluses. Well, you're stuck with so many U.S. dollars at the end of that trade surplus that you tend to buy, you know, U.S. assets and you tend to, because you don't want to deal with the currency conversion, you tend to buy U.S. treasuries and just kind of use that as sort of your savings account, essentially, and those things that are very liquid and very easy to generally get out of. Not super volatile. I think that when you're but talking- But is that still an investment though? Well, no, I mean, it's their strategy, right? It's, it's, okay. So they have to do something with their money. Anytime you're, you know, you're trying to create some kind of a passive place for your money to generate some income along the way, that is still kind of an investment. But when I think you're talking about this idea of diversification and all of that and how it actually really works um, in the market, at least from my perspective, is that it's not really 100% in either direction. I think that what markets, what, what good portfolio managers tend to do is what we call sector rotation, Right. So what you tend to do then, and so I'll give you an example in COVID, right? And this was sort of my own trading style in COVID. So COVID hit, and this is when I also dovetails into the story a bit too, because like through 2019, I was like just starting to get my feet wet in some of those cryptocurrencies. And then COVID hits in 2020. And I've got lots of time at home by, you know, by myself, <laughs> you know, hanging out with like my dog and my partner. Um, and I'm looking at the market volatility in March. Uh, of 2020 and in February as well, like starting in February, I remember that my birthday is February 18th and the market actually peaked right before COVID, like on my birthday. Right. Um, if I could go back to one birthday and just short everything, it would be right there. <laughs> but anyway, at least for a month and then buy everything, right? Um, so when I started to see that volatility hit in March, I started to have a lot of folks being like, Andrew, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Because I, you know, I work with academics who don't really have a lot of finance background. And I was just like, holy fuck, I actually 
have a background in this. Why am I not using it? Why am I just passively being like, oh yeah, I think this will happen and that happens. Like, why don't you actually just go and and start actively trading again instead of just having sort of these sort of fixed, just simple investments? Um, and so I got real into it in April, uh, particularly starting in March. Um, and I think it was very easy to know right away when the capitulation was in that sell-off, right? It was, I think it was March 23rd. I think it was a Monday. And I, I remember, if I'm not mistaken, it might be had the day wrong, but I remember it was like, okay, this is the bottom. This is obviously the bottom because it's just like a huge knife, right? You know, all right. the way through the chart. And then, you know, in the morning and there was massive trading volume that morning, um, everyone was dumping and trying to get out. And, and then suddenly you saw this massive snapback by the afternoon with equal, if you not even larger size volume coming in. And it looked like all the sellers were exhausted. And it looked like we at the very least had that big knife right down. Now, knife being like a big red candlestick on your chart. Yes. Yeah, just yes. for the uninitiated there. Big red candlestick uh, on your chart. And like the thing I would say is, is that during those epic sell-offs like we saw in March of 2020 or we saw, say, in October of 2009, um, you know, trying to buy when those things are dropping like that, we used to call that like trying to catch a falling knife in, in trading, Ooh. right? Because that's what it feels like, right? Because you're probably not going to catch the right moment. And you almost kind of have to wait for that sort of, like, you have to wait for that turnaround, right? right. And then you're like, okay, I got this. And because I was trained to, to know what those things sort of look like, maybe I jumped in it like, you know, I'm very proud of myself for noticing it on that day. That's basically what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Just giving myself a pat on the back. Um, I love these I, terminologies that you're giving because, like, in March 20, Mar yeah, March 2020, on, on, I think it was March 12th, there was a big knife on, on Bitcoin's chart, but also we got that again uh in like may 2021 and i tried to catch the knife and i actually probably just got the, the knife right through the hand actually yes yeah and, and then you feel like your hand's pinned to the table and you got to wait for this exactly, thing to get pulled out of that's it exactly right? what happened so i'm loving that these these labels that you're giving us to uh to speak more accurately about about our trading strategy momo trading was another one momo trading yeah well, i mean like trading desks are uh, colorful places you know <laughs> <laughs> i'm definitely giving you the pg uh stuff that i heard that I, that we've experienced on that um but yeah so march comes around and sort of similar to to what you were saying about like trying to time this a little bit once i saw the snapback i immediately sort of piled in um to the long side of the trade i got out of like the short side of the trade um admittedly i i, I didn't catch the very bottom on the short side just because i was waiting for that snapback i actually wanted confirmation that this was over, right? So that's when I sort of got out was in the, the 23rd, 24th. Um, and then we immediately, you kind of knew where, I think if you, if you were had your head on straight, you kind of knew where this was going to go. And so you're like, right now, I'm going to stay completely away from commodities because we have a complete demand collapse, right? So fundamentally, commodities should not be touched right now. Um, and the only, and I want to pile into pretty much everything that has to do with tech. So it wasn't that I sold every last position in other places and in, in, in banks and stuff like that, but I just reallocated my entire portfolio towards the tech sector and probably um, to the point where it was like 50, 60% in tech. So that might be explaining a little bit about what I'm, what I mean by sort of diversification in the sense that like, it's not so much that you have to have like 10% of this, 10% of that, 10% of that. That's fine if you want to autopilot a grandmother's portfolio. But when you're actively trading, like you do keep some other positions in other areas, but you tend to then just overweight heavily where you think it's going to go up. And that kind of falls in line a little bit with what you were saying. It does. <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it, then that's called sector rotation because you're... Well, the sector rotation part I'll get to in a second, right? Okay. So that's just like overweighting my portfolio heavily in one direction, in one sector at that point. And so at that point, it was tech. 
Um, I sort of felt by the time that we got into sort of um, September, October, November of last year, I started running around telling everybody to get into commodities right away because supply chains are broken. Scarcity is going to be the biggest thing now. Demand is coming back. We have vaccines on the horizon. Um, buy oil, buy anything that we need as an input. If you're okay with buying oil, that is, you know, some people aren't and that's fair. And I understand that I do work for the College of Sustainability <laughs> um, as a professor there. So I don't advocate buying oil. But if you were going to buy oil, last October was probably a good time. I mean, the best time would have been like when oil went down and like to a negative in April. But it was still a bit, again, too risky at that point. But you saw that happen right away. You saw as soon as the sort of the tech thing sort of um, basically got to a point where it seemed a little overextended. You started to see selling of that in September of 2020. And then you started to see a sector rotation into commodities. And then you started to see portfolios overweight in that direction. Um, I think that that was also very good for Bitcoin too, because I think that some of those folks that were reallocating were looking at Bitcoin as another sort of type of hedge yeah. on this type of you know, um, inflation that we were about to see. And so, um, so yeah, so that's, so, so in the end, I ended up rotating, you know, the vast majority of my portfolio into, into commodities and also into banks because banks also would probably, as we got more and more inflation, banks would have more pricing power because we'd likely see higher interest rates, which means they can now charge more for loans and more of a differential there. Um, and I also figured that the banks were making so much money on trading over the course of that volatility on behalf of their clients and for their own proprietary desks. So I was like, these guys are going to report like gangbusters. Now, tech stayed very strong, I have to say. It still kind of maintained itself relatively strong. Probably could have made a fair amount of money if I had stayed overweight in tech. But I think that it was a choppier ride. And I also feel like what it's done in the last year is not as interesting as what commodities have done in the last year, um, including things like Bitcoin. And so one of the areas I got very heavily into, invested in um, about a year ago when all of that sector rotation was happening, was cryptocurrencies. Um, because I was like, now at this point, you know, maybe like sort of the older I get, the, the younger my, my brain works, is that I was sort of like, <laughs> fuck gold. Gold is stupid. I want to trade these things. I also want to learn about these things. I also feel like I understand these things now. And I started, and because I had sort of reacclimated myself to swing trading, right? Um, I had sort of had more time to analyze their charts. I think in the past, I would just look at it in passing. But now, you know, there's nothing like having money on the line to make you focus, right? <laughs> and so that whole summer, like, you know, just sort of, you know, day trading and swing trading and all of that, cryptocurrencies became part uh, of that. And, um, and in a very interesting part, um, and the fact that I think that without a lot of money makers and sorry, money makers, um, market, market makers, makers, yeah, and stuff like that involved in that space, um, in in folks you know that are banks with tons of inventory that can you know make sure to stabilize the price. I find that it trades in a much more pure trading pattern. I think than a lot of other, um, at least from my experience, than a lot of other asset classes. Because it's really just traders, really, that are mostly involved in that space. And they can be traders at home. They could be hedge funds. They could be anyone, right? But they're all there sort of trading this. Is it also because it trades 24-7, 365 worldwide, and there's really no pause? There's no ability to put a pause on it? It's peer-to-peer -peer trading as well as over-the-counter trading as well as uh, exchange trading. It's all of, it's basically everything that you could possibly build into it. You've got futures markets, you've got spot markets, you've got mm -hmm. any other possible way to, to yeah, own it, buy markets. it, bet on it. It's there. Yeah. 
No. And I think the 24 hour thing is not, that's not necessarily new because that happens with all currencies, but currencies, fiat currencies, right? You have governments that need to intercede. They have monetary policy. They can change interest rates, right? They have fiscal policy. They can spend more, they can tax more, they can take more in, right? So that, that is your, your big variable when you're trading in currencies. You're, I mean, if you want to talk about a group of traders that are obsessed about politics, right? It's currency traders <laughs> and, and in some cases, commodity traders. I think that when it came to, to Bitcoin, like that wasn't an element, right? So you have this 24 hour completely like market that is like constantly going like you have in a normal currency market, but without having to worry about really like governments coming in and, and executing on their monetary and fiscal policy, or even maybe um, on their sort of balance of payments having an effect on their currency side. And so well, we, it, we do like to talk about Bitcoin's monetary policy though, because yes, there's monetary policy that influences the, the foreign currency markets, but Bitcoin's monetary policy is constant. It's so like, it's not that it's not there, it's that it's constant mm-hmm. and it can be relied upon. It can almost be ruled out as, well, it, it can be ruled out as a variable rather it, like you can actually just say that, okay, well, this is the distribution rate. This is the rate of inflation at any given point in time. This is how much supply is going to be there in the future. And there's not an entity in the world that can change that, which is kind of a useful thing. And then cryptocurrency, other cryptocurrencies have kind of like taken that in and made it a lot more perverse, uh, like SafeMoon and um, Ethereum with its, with its burn rate and mm-hmm. um, all sorts of different ways to, to make that supply fluctuate. Yeah, I think I think you're I think in Bitcoin particularly, uh, it is such it's just integrated into it. Right. right. So you you don't have to guess, right? You don't have to guess that, oh shit, the inflation number just came in at five percent. We're probably gonna look at higher rates in the next couple of months and this is gonna affect that and affect this and all this kind of stuff. And oh no shit, the housing market's slowing down. It's not the government's gonna have to lower rates. Like it doesn't have anything to do with that kind of stuff, right? You're not trying to predict a thousand different variables when it comes to the monetary uh, sort of policy of it. Um and, uh, and so I think that for me, that combined without like a lot of market makers in this thing of any real sort of effect created something that when you look at a lot of the charts, it just sort of does what it's supposed to do. We were looking at a chart before <laughs> we started here about like these sort of like very consistent, you know, 35 to 38% retracements, you know, which kind of fall nicely in line with like normal sort of Fibonacci sequence retracements that a lot of traders look for. Um, and you know, to find something that reliably trades on those levels. Uh, I mean, like it's not impossible, but I mean, it's, 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 it, it gives a little bit, I feel like as a trader, um, a little bit more predictability about entry exit points, things like that a little bit. Um, you could get burned, right. It could break right through your resistance levels that you're looking at. Uh, like we were talking a couple of weeks ago, it was like, where's Bitcoin going to go right now? It was looking a little double top issue. It was going to break out or it was going to fall back. Now, as of, you know, the last couple of days, we've seen a bit of a breakout. So that could mean higher highs for a while. Um, and, you know, and, and again, having some of these retracements and that you can always break a chart too. But I think that just the, the sort of, I don't know, it just, I guess it's just intuitively the trading in the cryptocurrencies just feels like it just matches with everything that you're kind of t- taught as a trader, mm. right? I have a question about that. On the technical that. side. I have a question about just trading in general because... It okay. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of sounds like um, you're looking at the stars and predicting that if you're born in August and you're a Virgo, then this is going to happen in your life this month. <laughs> um, and you know, if you follow the moon, then you know whatever. There's different astrological signs for what is going to go on in your life. And when you said that uh, you can look at these patterns and form some sort of predictability and what the asset is going to do next, 
how how can how can one rely on a chart that simply plots what the market is doing in order to decide market has done, oh, sorry yeah market has done slash is doing right now to predict what decision to make next either to make money or, or well i guess lo- losing money is a consequence of taking the wrong action but how how is a reliance on charts like these formed well i think when you're talking about technical trading, it's, it's, it's fair to compare it to um, astrology <laughs> a little bit, not so much astronomy, right? It's not, there's no like perfect science to technical trading, but um, it's sort of like studying history a little bit, right? History repeats itself, but never exactly the same way, but there tends to be patterns that you can look for. But I think even more so than sort of just the pure historical analysis of where this has been and how it's acted in the past, which I think is valuable, is that there are, in, in technical trading, if everyone is looking, it almost comes to self-fulfilling prophecy. If everyone is looking for the same levels, if everyone is looking at the same patterns and charts and knows that this is how they should react to it, then you've created a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? right? So if I know that this thing, um, say this thing had like turned away and it formed a double top, and I know that my next level where I think a lot of other traders are going to get curious about this again is on a sort of a one-third Fibonacci retracement, I'm going to be looking at that level too. And maybe I'll even put in a couple of orders there to see what happens. Not going to go crazy, but just a couple of things there to see if that hits and then bounces. And if it doesn't, well, then I reassess. And so in in some senses, it also is a lot. So in that way, it's a lot of psychological, right? About these charts and patterns. And, you know, if I see something max out and then suddenly get to the same point and then turn back again, I'm going to be like, oh, it's going to have, it's having a lot of trouble that the market feels that this um, that is the maximum value of this thing. And no one is really willing to buy it beyond that level, but people are willing to sell it there. And so it's there, it's insights into the market psychology, right? And that's, that's a sort of really how good way works. to put it insights into market psychology. I think that I've never heard it be analogized to that precisely. I mean, that's how I kind of felt about it. And, and, you know, I mean, for me, that's what it felt like sitting at a desk with a bunch of other traders who are constantly obsessing about all these points. I'm like, well, this. There's, there's thousands of these desks all over the world with everyone obsessing about these exact same points, <laughs> which means that these points matter because we want them to matter. Right. Um, and then there's also like, you know, sort of these sort of natural mathematical patterns that we have in nature, right? When you think about things like, you know, Fibonacci retracements and stuff like that. And like, you know, that is something that nature tends to do that, you know, maybe there's just something psychologically about human beings that when we see something suddenly drop by one, th- by one third from where it was, we're certain like, oh, maybe now. That, that suddenly just went off in my head that now it's cheap to buy, right? Right. And so I think that, you know, that part, I don't know. I think that's maybe more the astrology part. <laughs> um, and like, you know, because sometimes, you know, you really good, um, you know, sort of uh, things from your Zodiac that can give you some insights, I guess. But again, I think it's also about sort of, yeah. How you perceive it. Yeah. Right. Because some people will, will get something, a lot out of analyzing their, their charts and then their astrology charts. <laughs> yeah. And then some people will get a lot of analyzing their Bitcoin charts or their their trading charts, whatever it might be. Yeah. And like going back to what we were talking about a bit last time, you know, those types of movements are also built into all the black boxes, right? So you don't even really need humans to also reinforce a lot of these trading strategies. These Because these strategies have proved themselves over time to certain degrees, not in perfection by any means, but proved themselves in time, they're built into the direction that the market's gone, right? And right. so there are a lot of algorithmic trading is built on chart reading. Wicked. Yeah. So that tends to become a bit of a self-fulfilling part of that prophecy as well. Good to know. Good mm-hmm. to know that, yeah, that, that is a great way of explaining it. I think that I've always been curious about how there can be so much reliance on um, like points in that of points 
that kind of depict what the market has done in the past and how someone can reliably make the decision to do something with whatever asset in the future. Also, because I remember reading a chapter in the psychology of money and like talking, he had this line called profits are not historians or historians are not profits is what it was. And it was talking about how you um, like, it says something about trading that I don't um, necessarily remember, but I, I just always found it funny that people can uh, make future decisions based on past decisions when they're not really related in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. But it works. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to uh, like segue into the classroom um, and some, some. Yeah. Cause even with, with the questions, cause um, our mutual, our, our friend yeah. and your student mm -hmm. slash friend, mm -hmm. um, Justin, I was going to call him Andrew again, Justin Andrews. Mm -hmm. He was the one who um, told us to get in touch with you and to thank you, Justin, because we know you're listening. <laughs> You've been waiting for this for a while. Um, and what I'm wondering is with respect to the questions that you got about cryptocurrencies since 2017, how have they matured? Have they been the same questions over the past three years or are people just automatically looking at it differently and asking you different sorts of questions now? I think... That between 2017 and the beginning of COVID, the questions maybe got slightly more complicated over the course of that period. Since COVID, they are so much more thoughtful and in-depth. I think that a lot of folks took that year lockdown and, <laughs> I mean, the market was one of the, the big shows going on, right? right. It was yeah. like, what am I going to do? I'm going to watch Netflix. I'm going to do some work and get on Zoom. And then maybe I'm going to watch this crazy stock market, do shit that I didn't really expect I actually in love pandemic. watching a chart. Yeah, it's it's a sick. Uh, I don't know what is it. Uh, pleasure of mine. That's what I'm trying to say. Just watching green and red flash across my screen. There's something about it. Yeah, I I I I, I think I like I think I like it. But then I also have some like weird sort of like PTSD moments from 2008. You know, with like floods of red, yeah. um, which weren't necessarily bad, but also kind of scary to watch. Uh, and but yeah, no, it is. It's super interesting. It's super interesting watching it. Um, all the blinking lights in your face, the chart sort of forming, the pattern, the volume, like it tells its own story. Oh yeah, and you apply all these different indicators, you know, um, to it, and, and you know, whichever ones you want to use. Um, and I find that traders tend to, because there's so many potential possible indicators um, that you can apply to a chart. I find that traders begin to become very familiar and sort of specializing in certain use of certain indicators, right? Because there's so many that like, I find that there's about like, you know, four or five that I will rely on more than almost anything else. You know what I mean? And I think that that's sort of just sort of a personal to your trading style and what type of a trader you are too, right? Because I mean, right. day traders use different types of indicators um, than say swing traders that are looking for a little bit of like a, a little bit of a longer hold. And then you have like longer hold traders, you know what I mean? That will do like larger rotations and stuff like that. And they'll also need different indicators. Sometimes it's just about the amount of time you're analyzing. Um, and so, so yeah, so I feel like the questions since COVID have become so much more nuanced and thoughtful, um, from a lot of the folks that have been asking me about this. And luckily, because I've now been like more involved in that market, um, I have better answers than I used to have as well. Right. Not like speculative answers, but actual, you know, answers. Concrete but, answers. Yeah. Concrete answers, at least from my point of view. I mean, I might be wrong. Everyone who, anyone who gives you financial advice is probably a little wrong. Right. I mean, we like giving advice away because it's free. Right. And so I think that, um, in that regard, it also got me thinking about a class that I had had on the drawing board for a while, which was a class on, um, basically green finance and investing and things like that. And so, um, seeing the interest, I thought it was the right time. And so I just sort of, uh, had that course approved to be teaching next semester. Awesome. Uh, in fact, I think Justin is, um, uh, 
uh, he's not, I don't think he's in the class. I think he's, uh, what's it like observing? What's the word for it? Auditing. Auditing the class. Yeah. Cause I think he's got a little bit too much other work and other stuff trying to, <laughs> trying to graduate, but he wants to like, you know, watch it. And I think that one of the things that I wouldn't have thought to really integrate heavily into a class like that three or four years ago, when I first sort of popped in my head was, uh, cryptocurrencies, but now definitely blockchain to a large extent, um, and cryptocurrencies to a secondary extent will be, you know, a part of teaching it because I don't think you can now teach finance, especially to younger investors without addressing that part of the market. Right. Which is awesome. That's, mm -hmm. It's fascinating that this thing is only 13 years old and yet it's now like a requirement to teach it because well, I think we're all in alignment with respect to it not going anywhere in the future. Yeah. And I mean, it's also nice that like something so young hasn't blown up in our face. You know, <laughs> I mean, you think about like the 2008 financial crisis and a lot of the interesting derivatives that people thought were really cool and wonderful when they were inventing them in 2004 and 2005 and then realized that they were just an absolute shit show when you couldn't unpack them and when the diversification and risk analysis inside them were totally off. Um, and so, but I think that in some ways it's because these things are so transparent, right? There's no, it's not packaged within something. It's not right. bits of like different things, you know, trying to put together to diversify the risk like you see in a lot of these more complex derivatives. And so I think that, uh, in that sense, it's kind of a straightforward thing. I mean, it's a currency essentially, right? Yes. Without having any type of a government running it. So one of the questions that Justin said that uh, you start your class off with uh, is you like to just ask your your class to define capitalism for you. Um, can you can you tell us what, one of these stories? Because I'm sure you've done this multiple times. But like, what are the answers that you get? I also want to know what your definition yes. of capitalism is. Mm, I don't really know if I have one anymore. I mean, like, I feel like I I feel like okay. So here's kind of how I feel about. And the why, world. why do you ask that question to your class in the first place? Well, I ask that question to my class because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what capitalism is, about where capitalism started, about um, how it sort of operates. Um, and I also, I think one of the things I also am trying to pick apart in that question is how much people are associating things that really should not necessarily be associated together 100%. Right. And one of the biggest associations that I find among my young students is a, and this is lessening again since COVID, but for a long time, from my first like five, six years of teaching was this absolute horror at the idea of capital markets, that markets are the worst thing ever. And they, because they associate sort of markets with capitalism, that capitalism and markets are the same thing. And it's like, no, that is absolutely not fucking true. We've had markets for thousands of years. Markets are a distribution mechanism. Markets are basically a pricing mechanism. That's all a market is. It can right. be a pricing mechanism under any real type of um, economic system you want to create, right? I mean, you can go back to like God Kings, you know what I mean? And like Pharaohs and stuff. And you had a market system helping to create prices. Capitalism just likes markets and adapts very well to markets. And so I think that there's an over-association between the two. Um, and I also think there's sort of a misconception, at least among my students, that capitalism is purely defined as neoliberalism, which is not the only version of capitalism that exists. Neoliberalism being like, a, like an Ayn Randian kind of dystopian uh, selfishness. Yeah. And they, and I think one of the reasons why they, my, a lot of my students like sort of associate it with markets is because in some senses, like that type of approach, that neoliberal uh, capitalist approach is also about market fundamentalism, right? In the sense that let the market decide everything, outsource everything to the markets. We should not allow government to do anything. Government will only screw up. Government will only waste money. Um, and this whole idea of like starving the beast, constantly starving government. 
Um, but that's not necessarily the only version of capitalism. There's lots of varieties of capitalism. And that's something else I try to explain to my students is that capitalism is like a very, very adaptive, evolving creature. And it comes in many flavors. Yeah. And it knows how to survive. Right. Um, and it will adapt, you know, and so you, you think about, you know, sort of that excessive type of non-regulated, highly volatile market that we had in the 1920s and resulting in the stock market collapse in 1929. And capitalism, in a sense, in the 30s had to embrace socialism in order to save itself, right? And so, you know, under the, the New Deal and a lot of the creation of like social safety nets, I mean, there was very little, um, really very little room for capitalism to continue on, on its current path, right? Because I mean, at that point, it was like, well, either we inject some social safety nets, we inject some type of socialism into capitalism, um, or else, you know, all of the capitalists are going to be hanging from lampposts pretty soon, you know, because things are getting pretty bad in the Great Depression, right? You got 35% unemployment. And so I think that it knows sort of how, how to save itself in that regard. I also think there's this misconception among my students that everything socialist is good, right? And I have to remind them that like, yeah, the Nazis were socialist, you know what I mean? Not to get like hyperbolic about it, but like, yeah, that was a socialist system. Right. Do you know what I mean? So like socialism can often, and I'm not anti-socialist or anything like that, or I'm, and, and I'm not like pro-capitalist, but I'm, but I'm saying you have to kind of realize that these are just um, isms that can be applied in any way that you really want to kind of adapt them. And when you look at a lot of socialist systems around the world, they're often used by dictatorships, right? Because if I'm not going to give you political rights, well, then I'm going to subsidize your economic well-being so you don't question me, right? So if you look at a lot of dictatorships, they have what they call the authoritarian bargain, where um, I'm going to get food subsidies, I'm going to get fuel subsidies, I'm going to get housing subsidies, but I will never get a chance to pick my own leader. And as long as that leader keeps giving me that bargain, I'm not going to question that. But when you see a lot of revolts and dictatorships, it's because that authoritarian bargain has broken down, that that particular government has now come under financial stress and can no longer continue to offer those social safety nets. Or the demographics have changed, do you know what I mean? And the country's become stagnant and you've had huge population booms. In a lot of ways, that's what you sort of saw in the Arab Spring in, in 2011, right? Was yeah. that these authoritarian bargains broke down throughout the Arab world with these dictatorships and people were finally willing to challenge them. But they're built on sort of socialist uh, approaches. I feel like socialism is sort of a way of sort of calming a system down and making things a bit more gentler for folks and creating safety nets. But you can integrate that into anything and you can also use it for sinister purposes. Um, but I think that, you know, Neoliberalism is not really a form of capitalism that I'm super fond of, um, but it seems to be the version that my students think is the only version of capitalism. So that's one of the reasons why I asked for that. Not because I'm trying to like, you know, gotcha, gotcha them. It's yeah. more of where are you all coming from? How are you seeing this particular, you know, um, economic approach? And where do I need to maybe fill some gaps in here? Right. Um, and so, you know, that's that tends to be why I asked that question. Uh I and like I, that approach. <laughs> when I want to know, and I also feel like, you know, I mean, like, you know, you also have like students that will, like I've had, I, I've asked my class at times, like, okay, so we talk about GDP a lot, but what exactly is it? Right. And maybe only like 20% of the class actually knows the actual definition of what GDP actually is and why we look at it. Or CPI for that matter. Or CPI. Um, and like so, these hugely important figures that, that, you know, we don't really exactly know how they're derived or understand all the factors that go into their derision. Yeah. And I think that the problem Derivation. is, is sometimes these things are taught with, uh, and I, and I don't think it's intentional, but I think that sometimes in some programs they're taught as if, you know, is as more ideology than they are taught first with giving out the basics of it. 
And so when it comes to something like GDP, you know, my students who don't even know what it actually is or, or haven't known the full definition of it, and I love my students and they're brilliant, um, but why would they know exactly what the definition is, is their only encounters with it has been in, in sort of teaching environments where they were told that it's bad and it's something that shouldn't be used as a gauge for a country's success. And because we use that as a gauge for a country's success, it's because of our neoliberal obsession with growth and that everything is growth obsessed and that that is, you know, a bad way of looking at whether or not a population is actually operating in sort of a sustainable way. That's all fine, um, but that doesn't tell me what the definition of it is, right? And so that's what they, that's, that's how they know it, right? In a lot of cases, because that's what they sort of been taught um, in, in other places. And so it's, I, I think my first few years teaching, I was very much about like kind of just piling in on the ideology side too. But then I started to realize that in, especially in my, in like first and second year courses, particularly in my second year course that I have a lot of creative control over, that actually was maybe more about taking a step back and actually defining things and actually explaining what these things are before you actually move on to whatever ideology you want to superimpose over it. Uh, you know, when I'm in fourth year at master's level courses, it's not quite as necessary, right? Because you, you hope at that point some of the fundamentals have kind of come through. Um, but yeah, I think that that's as a very long-winded <laughs> answer as to why I'm curious about what my students think about those particular things. Well, with respect to your definition of capitalism, though, is that is it something that changes? Is it fluid um, or is it something that you've understood and kind of recite or explain to other people when they ask you for what you think capitalism is? I think when, when I, when I think about capitalism myself, I, I think it's because I, I see it in so many, like, like a multi-headed hydra, right? You know, and some of the heads you like, some of the heads you don't really like. Um, and I think that, uh, like, yeah, like some of them are like puppy dog heads and the other ones are like, you know, vicious, like, you know, poisonous snakes that are going to kill you. Right. So it's like capitalism has a lot of different attributes to it. But I think that one of the things that is, um, important, I think, in capitalism is that it is really uh, a system that prefaces the power of the private sector. And I think that that is, for me, the, the ubiquitous thing that unifies a lot of different forms of capitalism. And depending on the amount of socialism you infuse into capitalism, like you can have, you know, more corporatist styles like you have in, say, Scandinavia, um, where, yeah, you know what, my students think that, that Sweden is socialist and they're not capitalist. I was like, no, actually Sweden's pretty fucking capitalist, right? But they have a lot of socialism that's hybrid with it. Um, I think when you see a lot of those, I think that, uh, that is sort of like a slightly different version, uh, and how much the private sector is maybe prefaced over, say someplace that's a little bit more like, I don't know, like Singapore, you know, or the United States, which are more, which try to act in the U S actually is somewhere a little bit more in the middle, but some of these more watchmen states, you know what I mean? Where the government is very hands-off. Um, and so I think that, uh, in that regard, um, you know, capitalism is what capitalism is in every place, but I think it also is something that interestingly that like, you know, I think for folks that are on the left and really, really, really dislike capitalism and that's fair. Um, I think that one of the things that's sort of interesting about that is that a lot of dictators on the right also don't like capitalism, right? right? The extreme sides on both sides don't really like it because it takes the power out of their hands to a degree. Um, and you know, if, and you can see even, you know, some of the crackdown that's going on China right now, right. And I wouldn't really call China a leftist regime at this point. And this is not, you know, this isn't the cultural revolution. This isn't, this is a very new China that, you know, is in some ways, I think that the leadership is actually more sort of traditional totalitarian, especially under Xi and that kind of thing. 
Um, and so I think for them, you know, capitalism can be a little unnerving because it can create instability. It can create these market movements. It can also empower, you know, billionaires and individuals and whether or not you agree that billionaires should exist or not. If, if I'm, you know, if I'm a dictator and I have a billionaire in my country, this is someone I need to contend with. This is someone that could be possibly a threat, right? And you see in a lot of these sort of illiberal democracies and bureaucratic dictatorships like China, but liberal democracies like Russia of like going after various oligarchs, you know what I mean, and all this kind of stuff. And you even started to see a little bit in the United States with Trump, you know. I think for Trump, it was because like a lot of the billionaires in the U.S. are much richer than him and it was more of a dick measuring contest and going <laughs> after people like, you know, you know, all, you know, Bezos and stuff like that. But you could see already that he was sort of viewing these folks as sort of potential rivals that could push back, right? Because that gives a lot of power to push back. And so, I don't know. I think that all in all, um, capitalism has done a lot of bad to the world. But I think also we today in 2021, as much as we talk about income disparity, as much as we talk about um, you know how difficult life can be on the working class, the fact is, is, you know, that if you talk about quality of life, um, someone in sort of the, the middle to upper middle class today has about the same uh, sort of trappings of quality of life when it comes to health and things like that, that billionaires used to have 100 years ago. Right. Only they used to have. And so whether, and that doesn't mean that, you know, these people are living like the Rockefellers of 100 years ago, but what it means is that something has happened in the last 100 years under this system where we've seen a very quick movement in technology, Right. In technology that is often consumer driven. I read this. Uh, you guys ever read any like Philip K. Dick? No. Yeah. Who is this person? He did like uh, he was the guy that wrote um, "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" and you know, which is Blade Runner. That's sort of like the book okay. underlying it, right? So it's a lot of like '60s sci-fi. He wrote this one book called um, "Man in the High Castle," and oh, uh, there's a show about that now. Yeah, yeah. There's a net. There's a, sorry, Amazon series on it. The series, the, the book is quite short. It's one of his typical like 200 maybe page books. But the series sort of like expands upon it. Basically, they just take his world and then create like a, yeah. a story in that world that just dovetails from the actual book because it just goes so much further. But there was an interesting thing in that book and that is this counterfactual about what if uh, Germany and Japan had won the war rather than the US, Britain and Soviet Union. It's pre um, premised on the, like that Germany invented the nuclear bomb before the United States did and just totally <laughs> blew the whole middle out of the United States, divided it into two sections. The West was owned by Japan and the East was owned by America, or sorry, not America, Germany. Yeah, and there's like <clears throat> this kind of neutral zone because it's the, between the two countries because it's the one area that these two empires kind of brush up against each other. And yeah, and so they invent the nuclear bomb first, they bomb Washington, it brings the Americans to their heels and then they invade <clears throat> Um, you know, it's a very sort of, that was never going to happen in real life, right? Um, the Germans were nowhere near close to atomic bomb or anything like that. In fact, they pretty much gave up on it about halfway through the war. Um, that's another tangent about like the over, like the, <laughs> the over, like, I don't know, there's this obsession with making Germany into the most powerful thing in the history of the world, you know, under the Nazis. And actually it was a pretty broken, failed state economically. Um, in fact, they were using horses to move most of their stuff. You know what I mean? Like they needed the Americans to set up. Uh, truck factories in Germany to show them how to do. Anyway, that's a whole separate. Point. The whole the whole thing point there is that um, in this future dystopian world uh, that Philip K. Dick um, creates, there's this really interesting sort of thing that he sort of I think he touches on really astutely, and he says, and he starts talking about technology that has now evolved to about like I think it's like the 60s when this is the book is taking place, so it's about like 15 years later. Um, 
And they have all of this like grand sort of big technology, like supersonic flights across the Atlantic, um, like, um, you know, like trying to send things to the moon and all that kind of stuff. These great massive government projects, which we saw some of in the Cold War, but mostly because the Soviets and the Americans needed to do it to out, uh, outdo each other. But there's a complete lack of consumer technology, right? Like everyone's watching like <laughs> shitty little black and white televisions and like, you know, there's not a lot of like, you know, anything, you know, I mean, like they, they, because the focus of the state is for the grandness of the state, right? And it's for this, these massive big infrastructure projects and like these, like, we're going to conquer the universe projects, but there's no like, oh, let's make sure everyone's got like a refrigerator, right? And so that I think is one of the things that is a little bit of a difference in my mind when it comes to capitalism, say, versus things like communism or um, fascism, right? And you, you look at the Soviet Union um, going into the 1980s, and I think that, you know, the America at that point, after Apple and um, the advent of, like, sort of... Uh, Microsoft. Microsoft, but, but all of those, like, sort of IBM PCs yeah. back then and Apple. Intel. Yeah, and that was just coming online. So this is right at the fall of the Cold War. They did an analysis of the amount of personal computers that existed in the United States versus existed in the Soviet Union. And this also includes like personal computers at universities, at government, right? And I think the numbers I can get you, but it was just shocking, the disparity, right? You have millions and millions of personal computers in the United States. I think you had something like 100,000 in Russia. And it just was not something that was really perfected, right? In some of these more very government-driven ways, right? I think government does a lot of things extremely well. But the one thing that I think that we have to admit that government doesn't do super well is, you know, in, in creating consumer products. Right. And so... Um, or if they do create a consumer product, it's not like distributed, quote unquote, fairly. Yeah. And I think one of the best ways that governments have been involved in the consumer space is, say, through just giving out patents and technology for someone else to actually use, right? You think about some of the stuff that came out of the space program and stuff that then ended up getting integrated into future technology. Um, but yeah, so for me, like that, that right there is something that is, I think it's a, it's a bonus from capitalism as individuals and in that we have all of these products that are dedicated towards making our lives more easy. But there's also a sinister aspect to that too, right? Because they're also making me more productive, which means that the company I work for, the university I work for are going to be more profitable, right? So everything is sort of by design. And then of course there's massive sustainability issues, right? Built into it, um, regarding sort of, you know, producing all of these shitty consumer goods that end up getting thrown out and then washing up on beaches. So it's, for me, that's where I fall in the whole thing in that I think there's, I think it's just very complicated and I think that there's good and there's bad, but this is the system that we're in. And this at the moment is the most dynamic system, um, generally speaking. Uh, and those that have tried to compete against capitalist systems haven't done super well in the last hundred years. Um, so I think whether we like it or not, we need to acknowledge what it does well. We need to acknowledge what it does poorly and we need to figure out a way to either, um, overhaul it, um, and create something new or figure out a way to adapt it. But what I always tell my students is that you need to understand the nature of the thing you want to overthrow <laughs> yes. before you try to overthrow it, right? The worst thing you can do is have, is is overthrow something that you don't understand because you have no idea what you just lost and you have no idea what you need to replace. That, that's a super valuable point. I was just going to say also that that was a really well-articulated extrapolation of the definition of capitalism simply because there's just so much to it. And for me, I feel like my definition is sort of fluid and it's something that you can't really define in one sentence because whoever invented the word from the time that it was used for whatever it was used for, 
it has taken a, a, a different form or it has taken shape differently over the past centuries. Um, and yeah, thank you for, and uh, wow. <laughs> words thank you for extrapolating on that definition and i hope that even for our listeners i think that capitalism is a very complex system and if you had any thoughts on it or if you wanted to add something about it please reach out to us also to andrew on, on twitter or email wherever you are most active because i think that it is very important to understand uh, properly understand the impact of capitalism and the importance of it too in the society that we live in um speaking of sustainability um and the fact that you asked this to your students at um sustainability of the environment what is the name of the program i'm, I'm messing it up um environment uh, uh, sustainability and society. So and it's the, yeah, the ESS program at Dalhousie. Yep. Environment, sustainability, and society. So I remember that when we had dinner, we were talking about, or we were introducing, um, what we were under the impression of with respect to the energy consumption of Bitcoin mining and how it is an incentive for, um, for companies to go out and seek cheaper forms of electricity in order to be the most profitable and i guess that is i guess a role of capitalism where obviously companies want to profit as much as they can and you gave us a different perspective on it that we weren't aware of and i really want to talk about that again because i myself am on a journey of coming to some sort of conclusion on understanding whether or not bitcoin mining is not whether or not it is good or bad for the environment, but what sort of impact it does have and what we're heading towards and how much responsibility I need to shoulder for liking this particular asset class. So how much research have you done into Bitcoin mining? Um, a bit when it comes to the energy use and such, yeah. Right on. And then what is your take on the like the amount of energy that needs to be consumed to keep this network alive and how there will be more and more companies that are like joining this really massive um, network in order to keep Bitcoin alive. I think that Bitcoin um, is a bit of a microcosm of some of the larger issues we have with the energy system right now. And I think that because it soaks up so much energy, you can see it manifest in Bitcoin, right? Through running all these blockchains and also sort of the approach that Bitcoin takes is more energy intensive than some of the other coins that have become very popular, like say Ethereum. Um, and, and it is, you look at a chart of like Bitcoin's um, energy consumption versus others, it's dramatically different. Um, and so- Compared to what though? I think compared to most of the, uh, what is it, the uh, proof of state. Proof of state and yeah, the blockchain, really. Yeah. yeah, they can run on a like, set of 100 computers, right. just your your laptop, really. And then you need 0.5% uh, of the global consumption of electricity to run the Bitcoin network at, at its current level. Yeah, which is a lot, not an insignificant amount, right? We talk right. about 0.5%, that's a lot. That's like a whole country or two. Depending on what you're looking at. Depending on which countries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and not necessarily like teeny tiny countries, right? Not like the U.S. Virgin Islands or something, right? Like you're talking about like actually like fully functioning like uh, countries. Now, I think that to be fair to Bitcoin, if you look at the global banking system, it also sucks up tons of energy, right? And um, I like, believe more so. How much? Um, I don't have that number on me. I, okay. I can, I can get that to you though, but I, I did read an article recently that was kind of like trying to like cool off a little bit on the Bitcoin thing being like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bitcoin's really, and I'll come back to Bitcoin in a second. Bitcoin's like problematic, but so is just the entire electronic 
um, capitalism that we moved into because it requires so much energy to just run in general. Right. right? All these markets require tons of money, transactions between banks, constantly having um, computers running and moving money back and forth. It all takes a lot of energy. So I want to put that out there first, that Bitcoin is not the only thing coming out of the financial system that is soaking up tons of energy. Um, but I think it's, it's a bit of a microcosm with a larger problem we have in energy, which is that um, we, uh, we have not yet fully mastered how to make renewables, at least in my opinion, unless you're dealing with hydropower or maybe geothermal, you're not really talking about wind and solar having the ability to really do everything, right? Like right. everyone says. You need some kind of a baseline energy source. And when you, and because you're going to need energy when you have intermittencies, especially if you have something that's soaking up a lot of energy, like a large blockchain, right? So what does that mean? Well, that means that, you know, at night when there's no solar going and if there's not an excellent storage capacity, which, you know, hasn't been fully mastered in solar, well, then now I'm switching over to the coal that's being used all night, right? And um, coal and Bitcoin is pretty deadly together, I would say, for the environment. And, you know, for a long time in China, you know, this was one of the main sources of energy that was used for some of the larger Bitcoining my, uh, operations. And now you have a lot of them moving to places like Texas. But I think that, you know, there are, I think, people that are um, environmentally conscious that are setting up, uh, you know, sort of Bitcoin um, mining operations and do want to try to hook into grids that um, are more sustainable. But then there's a lot of folks that don't care either, right? And just want the cheapest power source ever because power is an input, right? It's an input cost when you're- You can convert it straight into cash now. Exactly. And so the cheaper I get that power, the better. And some of the cheapest forms of power are some of the dirtiest. And so this has been one of the problems with Bitcoin. Really? Some of the cheapest sources of power are the dirtiest? When you're talking about baseline power, yeah. When you're talking, I mean, coal right now is having a huge renaissance in the supply chain breaking down. Um, coal right now is at all times highs. Everyone is restarting their coal plants. And I'm not just talking about the Chinese, but also even the Germans are looking to probably restart a lot of their coal plants because they shut down all their nuclear plants. I think that, you know, nuclear, whether you love it or hate it, is definitely a lot, lot cleaner of a source for baseline energy than, say, coal. It's just, you know, you have meltdown issues. But I think it depends where you build them, right? I mean, you shouldn't build one on, like, the Ring of Fire in Japan, probably not the best idea. And then, you know, not put some protocols in. Same thing you had with, like, Chernobyl and stuff, where it was an experimental reactor. So a lot of the incidents we had, you know, in nuclear development were also because the projects were not were poorly conceived, shall we say. So I want to put forth one of the nuances of, uh, like, regardless of where the energy comes from, like one of the things that Bitcoin allows for us to do as an addition or an add-on to uh, to our energy grids is buffer the amount of energy used. Um, because like when you run a grid, you've got, you've, you have to maintain, you have to produce as much electricity as there is needed for peak demand. <laughs> and if you don't have anywhere to put that electricity, a lot of the times we just pump it into the ground. We need to discharge that. Whereas that that can help, uh, like you're going to be producing that energy one way or another. And so there's this perception that Bitcoin like is increasing the demand, which I'm sure is true in some areas, but in other areas, it acts as the buffer. And it says, okay, well, if we're burning this coal only for, for to, to meet peak demand, only to pump that electricity into the ground and discharge it and take, take a loss on that, then doesn't that kind of, at least a little bit offset the uh like the environmental impact it increases the profitability of the um the foundry or the the pro the the production facility for the electricity like what, what what are your thoughts on on that particular side of things with just acting as a buffer i think um i haven't really looked super closely at the buffer part i have seen 
some thoughts about trying to capture some of the heat, right? right. Um, and repurpose that um, for some of these large Bitcoin farms, right? And sort of repurpose that into like a secondary source of energy. I think that that is where we're going to be going with a lot of stuff, right? Is trying to um, make everything much, much more efficient, right? Make our use of energy and also with wasted energy, find ways to access and recycle that. So I think that like every other industry that is a large consumer of electricity, and I think, you know, and I'm not just trying to pick on Bitcoin here. You look at the extractive industries, right? Huge consumers of electricity in their own right, mining operations and oil and all this kind of stuff, right? Even though they're producing energy, it also takes a lot to get things out of the ground. And then move it to where it needs to be refined into microchips or whatever it might be into to build consumer electronics or industrial electronics. Yeah. And I, and I would also offer that I think that anyone that gets on an airplane can't really talk shit about Bitcoin, right? Just because like, if you want to really up your carbon footprint, just take a couple flights. There's nothing that you can really do worse as an individual in a single shot, right? Unless you go and like, you know, blow up a coal plant and like put it all in the sky or something, which I, you know, obviously it's more of a terrorist act. But I think that, yeah, I think that like there, there are sustainability issues, I think, with Bitcoin in particular uh, out of the cryptocurrencies. But what I'm hearing from you is that's more so like a, like a systemic sustainability issue. It's a, it's a sustainability issue that proliferates or leaks into a byproduct of how we produce electronics in the first place, which that's unavoidable. Like we have absolutely no problem agreeing with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, but I think it's worthwhile to note that, you know, the proof of work uh, approach is energy intensive. It's very energy intensive. And that I think you're seeing most new cryptocurrencies move away from that. And I think that if you start to get a bigger push, shall we say, towards including a lot of environmentally sustainable investments in your portfolio, and I was a hedge fund where my mandate as a part of investing in an ESG approach, but also part of my mandate was investing in cryptocurrencies, I might pick Ethereum over uh, Bitcoin, or I might pick another cryptocurrency over Bitcoin because it'll have less of a carbon footprint on my portfolio. So I think that as we see a move towards more green finance, but also as a move towards more uptake of cryptocurrencies, I can see that this could begin to put a little pressure on Bitcoin itself versus some of the others, right? And we have seen some of these other cryptocurrencies begin to relatively catch up in price to Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin's up there in 66,000 today or something. Yeah, US. Um, It's US. Um, but I think that the move to 66,000 for Bitcoin as a percentage has been much smaller than the moves we've seen in Ethereum in the last year. Right. Market dominance for Bitcoin has gone down relative mm-hmm. to where it used to be. For example, 2017 to 2020, it was up at 66%. Now it's closer to 40. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we were, t- when we had dinner about a month ago, um, when we were sort of gaming out doing this podcast, I think that, you know, we were talking about the fact that we don't exactly know what the final iteration is going to look like of cryptocurrencies, that this is still an evolving market, right? Right. And that we might end up with some type of a cryptocurrency that is built to be much more, that is built with this in mind. I don't think that in 2009, that was something that was heavily on the mind of people that were putting together um, cryptocurrencies, right? I think that now it is. Um, And so in that sense, Bitcoin has a little bit of a legacy issue with its creation, given that at the time there was not a ton of worry about this, right? I, I actually I, I would push back against that. I, I do think that there is a consideration into exactly what proof of work does. It's like it's an anti-spam mechanism. It's like the more energy you put into the system, the stronger the entire system becomes. And like one of the core goals, like, yes, it says in the white paper, peer-to-peer electronic cash system. But in order to have cash, you need an absolutely robust system that's impenetrable to 
to an, to an attack. And like the way to do that most effectively is by having layers of security. And like two of the most fundamental layers for Bitcoin is the hardware layer and then the energy layer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Mugashi did a video recently for Hello Bitcoin and like the way that they described the energy uses, just like it's a massive shield around Bitcoin. Whereas if you wanted to mess with the system at all, you have to come up with uh, an equal or greater amount of energy. And that's just technically infeasible at this point in time. And, and so like, yes, we've got this large energy uses, um, but like one thing that's uh, missing from the conversation, it's like, what does that energy do? And why does it do it? And why can't that not be done any other way? And I think like to like being fair to other blockchains, uh, like proof of stake is actually like relatively early. And I'm like very much so looking forward to seeing whether or not they can provide a similar security assurance as Bitcoin does. Um, but we'll see. No, I mean, and and I think that this is this is the conundrum, right? Is that yes, yes <laughs> proof of work uses a lot more energy, yeah. but it's more secure, it's more effective, it's more reliable, and it's why Bitcoin has been the gold standard, right, of the cryptocurrency space. It's right. because it has not deviated from this sort of preferable, aside from the energy use, um, form, right, in some ways. Um, but I think it is going to be interesting where proof of stake goes. I think we're also seeing like the way the number of calculations, like everything I think is going, I think, I, I think it would be naive for me to say, this is, this is it. This is what the crypto space is going to look like in 10 years, 20 years from now. Do you know what I mean? I, think, I don't think anyone can say that with assurance. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I think, I think that, you know, they're going to, it's going to learn from, from itself, right. And from, totally. from each other and that you'll see these adjustments, I think, take place um, in that space. And who knows, maybe you might even see an overhaul in Bitcoin a little bit in the way that they conduct things, um, you know, in the way that the blockchain works. Um, especially if they start to get pushback from from governments and stuff like that. But it could also be mandating maybe certain types of energy uses for it, right? And that like you, you'll get a higher tax on Bitcoin, you know, um, now that we're starting to regulate a bit more. If you're using coal, then say if you're using offsets, uh, not so much offsets, but like, you know, geothermal or maybe hydro or something like that. So you could see... You could, I could see governments in Europe doing stuff like that, you know what I mean, who are kind of like nitpicking on things like that right now <laughs> right. with certain stuff. Um, but then again, there's not a lot of Bitcoin miners going to Europe, right? They're all going to Texas. Um, I don't see Texas caring too much, um, generally. Canada, Iceland. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Iceland's on the whole. Iceland's great because Iceland's all geothermal, right. right? So like that's another one where you could see that you're, you're then, you know, on a much different trajectory energy-wise. But I think it's worthwhile to bring up because I think if we don't bring it up and we don't talk a little bit about, you know, some of the sustainability issues of Bitcoin in particular, I don't think it'll change, right? You have to create a little pressure. I don't think any of us want the planet to burn. Correct. And so I think that it's, you know, it's it's a it's a fair criticism, just like all of the fair criticisms of capitalism that we were just talking about, that it's kind of a shit system most of the time, but it does yield certain things that we have to admit have been useful and effective. Um, and maybe was, you know, and, and that's things we can't always get from other systems. And so, yeah, so that's kind of where sort of I see that space. I see it as a space that is super interesting to me now. I think I have converted away from being kind of snobby ex-finance. This is a bullshit asset class that's going to disappear and it has, you know, is nothing to it. Even though there's a lot of very brilliant people in the finance space who still say that. Um, and I don't want to take away from them. They could end up being right. Who knows, right? Um, and But I think that this is, I think this is here to stay. I think that um, for me, if I was to get involved in this game, at home, it would all be about time and money, right? How much time do I have to actually trade this? And how much money do I have to invest? And what is my purpose with it? And I think that for the vast majority of people, I don't think that trying to actively trade this is a brilliant idea. You know what I mean? We are in agreement there for sure. Yeah. Yeah, Well, would one of your strategies be if you wanted to get into this space, just buying and holding for a really long period of time? Well, 
Yes and no. I think the problem with buy and holding is you don't really learn a lot from that, right? Because you just kind of like look at it like every two months and you hope for the best. But like, I feel like you going back to the portfolio designation, like why do you, why does your portfolio need to do one thing? Why can't you have 60% in a buy and hold and then have 40% that you're trading around it to learn a little bit about how to trade it? Or maybe 5% or 10% to trade. But I think it is worthwhile to engage in the markets. I just don't think that people should start go home and then use all of their money to become day traders in cryptocurrencies, right? Yeah, that's that ended very idea. poorly for, for many people. Yeah, 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 definitely. I disagree with respect to like them not learning much though, because like that's one of the things, the first things that we tell people to do is just like go buy $10 worth mm-hmm. and then withdraw it to a wallet that you own. So it's that second part, like the withdrawing and seeing how the technology actually works. Because mm-hmm. regardless of what form cryptocurrencies take in the future, one thing that is likely to be consistent among them well into the future is becoming familiar with, well, I have a 12 word phrase that is my money and like I need to write these down and then like jack this into this software wallet. And it doesn't matter if you use Bitcoin, Ethereum or any of the other thousand cryptocurrencies, that's the the common thread amongst them. And the thing that we would encourage people to learn more about rather than like picking an asset and, and trying to trade in. Yeah, I think I think that part I think is a given, right? That's built into just operating in the cryptocurrency space is like learning things like how your wallet works, how this all how this goes, how how it's safe, how it's not safe. Um, but I think that what I mean about like trading 15, 20% is that I think everyone I think I don't think it's it's wrong, or actually I think that the more the more you're armed with kind of the more effective you become. And I think testing out some of trading, looking at some of these technical patterns, having a little fun with it with money that is not imperative or if you lose it, it's the end of the world and learning a little bit about that. Because I also feel like when you understand that part a little bit better, it also makes you, you know, less nauseous when you have a big (laughs) sell-off and you are a buy and hold person, right? right? Because like the thing I find with folks that are, unless they're like completely oblivious and never look at it, but the thing I find with people that say they're buy and hold, but then like obsessively kind of look at their thing, but don't trade it, is that they often become weak hands in the market, right? And that means that someone, you know, maybe who understands these patterns a little bit better than you, you might get scared out of your position or at least part of your position and then they're going to buy it for a bargain and then move up. So I do think that, if you have the time to do a little trading with it and kind of experimenting with how the markets work just on a fundamental level is useful. Yeah. Um, but I don't recommend that to be with the majority or, you know, I mean, unless you are like fully setting yourself up to be a trader, which is fine. Like, that's cool. That's cool. That should, that should be your job, you know, at that point. Right on. I have mm-hmm. one last question for you, Andrew. Mm-hmm. If there's something that you learned later in life and you, you know, thought to yourself that, man, if I would have learned this earlier, I would have... Um, I guess I don't really like one to think about regrets and not having made decisions, but let's just say that you learn something later in life and you're thinking that, okay, cool. If somebody my age knows this now, it would be better for their well-being in the future. Is there something, you know, that you, that is your go-to advice that you give your students that you would like to share with our audience? Yeah. Um, there is definitely something actually that I think, uh, is something that I would put out there. And that is that I'm not sure if we talked about this a couple of weeks ago or if we talked about it at dinner. Um, so this might be redundant, but, um, you know, I have a lot of students that, uh, you know, have avoided things like math and stuff since they were in high school because they don't like math. And I get that. Um, and so they associate things like economics and finance with math. And if there's a little bit of a fear of math, then they kind of shut down. I think a lot of times when they encounter those things. But I think that um, one of the things that I feel like is a little systemic in a way is the fact that we don't teach people about money in high school. 
at least not in any kind of a concerted way. And it feels like a trap in a sense, right? Because you get out of high school and then you get to university and then suddenly you have debt, whether it's like college debt, whether it's credit card debt. Um, and then at that point you're in the system. And at that point you're going to be taken advantage of by the system if you don't understand how these things work. So I think that it's a little bit of a setup. And I think that um, we sort of set people up to become in debt and therefore become a bit of wage slaves. And with just a little bit of understanding about how these, how about how your personal finance works in relation to larger sort of financial sector, I think that should be taught, you know, for at least a couple years in high school before you get out into the world and start to actually interact with those systems because those systems are merciless, right? Right. And that's it. And there's nothing else to say about them, right? Because you're, you're, you're reduced to a number and that's it. And so I think that um, one of the biggest disservices that we do is not introducing people how to handle their own personal finance. And I think that you guys are doing a really awesome job of that in this particular space in cryptocurrencies, you know, which is why I'm, you know, I'm so excited to be here. It's like you guys are, I, I feel like more than anything else, I've learned a lot from you guys about how this all works, but also hearing what you do for your clients and hearing how, you know, this is essentially what you're doing is mostly financial education. And uh, in some ways, probably more directly than I am, because I'm only starting to do classes on pure finance now, you know, because um, it's mostly economic, which is more theoretical in a lot of ways, um, but useful. But yeah, I think that that's, that's the thing that I think that um, for whatever reason, and I'm not trying to be nefarious, this is all some kind of setup system systemically, but it ends up being that regardless of whether it's intentional or not. Um, that is something that I think is, is needs to change. Right on. Beautifully answered. Thank you for that. If people had more questions for you or wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way to find you? Um, I would say probably not my work email because <laughs> uh, that would probably um, hit me up pretty hard. But I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find me there. That's probably an easy way. I check that relatively passively like every three or four days, so I might not answer right away. Um, and yeah, and like, I mean, that's probably the best way. Probably hit me up on like LinkedIn or something like that. Um, and I'd be happy to, to chat and talk or anything if you guys want. Right on. And you will be teaching um, at the Environmental Sustainability and Society mm -hmm. or course or department mm -hmm. uh, next year as well. So if anyone here in Halifax or even in Canada or honestly really anywhere in the world you want to come take andrew's class <laughs> <laughs> you know where to find him um that that's where he'll be and if you have any more questions you can find him on linkedin mm -hmm. and you know i will say that i will definitely be including cryptocurrencies in that class 100 <laughs> yeah perfect mm -hmm. well andrew thank you so much for joining us for this second episode the first one was great and the second one has also been really just fantastic listening to your articulation of things that take place in the world thank you for joining us well thank you so much for having me yeah. I, hope you, I wish you guys the best in El Salvador. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <Yeah. laughs>